Dr. Susan Easton Black, this year's recipient of the Carl G. Mazur Distinguished Faculty Lecturer Award, is, our, is today's speaker. Named in honor of the first principal of Brigham Young University and provided through the generosity of the Carl G. Mazur Scholarship Society, this award recognizes one faculty member each year who has exhibited a distinguished performance as a citizen, teacher, and scholar in the university, and has attained a national and perhaps international reputation in an academic discipline. It is the highest honor given to a faculty member at Brigham Young University. Susan Easton Black has demonstrated a remarkable mix of teaching, research, service, and public speaking. After completing a doctorate in educational psychology, Dr. Black joined the BYU faculty as an assistant professor of family resource management. Shortly thereafter, she began her time in the Department of Church History and Doctrine. In 1991, Dr. Black was called to serve as the director of church history in the Religious Studies Center and as an associate dean of general education and honors. Dr. Black is currently a professor of church history and doctrine. She has an honored and rich professional career, having served on various university academic and religious committees. Her teaching, research, and writing skills have been recognized at local and national levels. Dr. Black has received numerous teaching awards, including BYU's Continuing Education Faculty Teaching Award and the Alumni Student Award for Excellence in Teaching, and has been recognized for her work in LDS Church History, Western Studies, and Family History. Dr. Black's Family History course recently was honored nationally with the highest award given by the University Continuing Education Association's group. It was, the award was entitled Community of Practice 1999 Distinguished Course Award for Non-Credit Courses. She's appeared in multiple Who's Who publications. She's published widely in various historical and religious fields. She's authored, edited, and compiled over 80 books and as many articles. These publications cover a wide range of topics, including general church history, topics on various church leaders, early church members, the Mormon battalion, and regional studies. She has also compiled information for various family history resources. She's an excellent, a superb teacher, imparting to her students the desire to search for excellence and a great devotion to the gospel. Her contribution to the university community is greatly appreciated. I had the opportunity two years ago to co-teach a Book of Mormon class with Sister Black. During that course of time, I learned what an incredible teacher and imparter of knowledge that she is. As you will learn today, this is a marvelous teacher. She has a marvelous repository of knowledge concerning church history and particularly the prophet Joseph Smith. Her address is entitled, Joseph Smith, Remembered Gratitude, Dr. Black. Thank you, President Bateman. It's my privilege to be with you. I'd like to begin my talk by describing a visit that I had in my home decades before. Normally, the visiting teaching message of Janice was upbeat, but not this time. As she came to my house and we talked, it was obvious 
but she was very sad. I asked what was wrong. Reluctantly, Janice spoke of going to a doctor and receiving the advice that she was not to have any more children. Now, I tried to empathize with Janice, but she already had nine children. Janice tried to explain to me that she wanted to be a mother of 12 and then asked the question, have you ever had something in your life that you wanted but you didn't get? Now, she was visiting me in a cabin that I lived in, in a place called Blue Jay, California. There was a sign as you entered the town that said, Population 118. The cabin was located on a dirt road. I had no visible means of support. I was unemployed. I was a single parent. I was raising three preschool children. Any of those comments I felt about my personal circumstance would surpass what Janice viewed as a tragedy in her life. Wanting to keep friendship going, I decided I would speak of a frustration instead. I said to Janice, I am frustrated by the lack of books in our local library. Wiping her tears almost in disbelief, she said, Do you like books that much? Yes, I replied. Why don't you go back to school? She asked me. I explained that although I'd looked into higher education, I couldn't afford the expense of having a sitter for my three sons. Unable to resolve our personal dilemmas at that visit, the visit ended and Janice went home. But late that night, the telephone rang. Susan, I have the answer for both of us, said Janice. I have nine children and want 12, and you'd like to return to school. If I watched your three sons without asking any financial recompense, and I watched them for a year while you attended classes, I would have 12 children, and you could be immersed in the world of books. It seemed like a great idea to me, and I accepted her offer. As a returning student, there was no question I was a Waldo in every class. Younger students, however, soon helped me to realize that I was their personal favorite. For when it came time to write group projects, they always said I should do it. They also gave me the opportunity to give oral reports and be the one to complain to the teacher if assignments seemed too unfair. Well, I loved the academic opportunities that year, but when I asked Janice, how was your year watching my children while I attend classes, she replied, the Lord knew exactly what he was doing when he gave me nine. <laughs> well, I continued to study. There was now an opportunity for me to be able to leave the mountains. There seemed to be a light in what had been a dark tunnel. The light for me was education. It was not long before, as I continued my schooling, I became a professor and then an acting department chair at Brigham Young University, something that I could never imagine years before as I lived on that dirt road and in the cabin. And then came a pivotal decision. Would I accept an offer to transfer from what appeared to be a very secure tenured position in academia to the Department of Church History and Doctrine as an assistant faculty member? Caring colleagues offered much advice, but what they didn't understand 
was that I was setting the alarm clock in the middle of the night so that I could wake up and read about events in the 19th century in such places as Palmyra, Kirtland, Ohio, Independence, Missouri, and Nauvoo. They didn't know that when near neighbors were taking their children to Disneyland, I was asking why they haven't seen Nauvoo yet. Not to justify a decision that I made decades ago, but in gratitude for the opportunity to join with the faculty of church history and doctrine, I present to you the life of Joseph Smith. That life has changed my life. It's brought happiness to me that I had no idea could be mine. Joseph Smith was born on December 23, 1805, in the rural setting of Sharon, Windsor County, Vermont. Dr. Joseph Adam Dennison, a country practitioner, reportedly assisted in his delivery and wrote in an account book years later, If I had known how he was going to turn out, I'd have smothered the little cuss. The assisting doctor never understood that it was decreed in the councils of eternity, long before the foundation of the earth was laid, that Joseph Smith should be the man in the last dispensation of this world to bring forth the word of God to the people. But the Lord knew and guided Joseph's life from his earliest days. When a typhus fever epidemic raged in the Connecticut Valley region, Joseph's life was spared, although afflicted. Oh, Father, the pain is so severe, cried Joseph. How can I bear it? Bear it he must, for the disease removed and ascended into his left leg and ankle. When his father, sitting on the bed and holding Joseph in his arms, Joseph then was willing to have the operation ensue. His recovery was slow and painful. Fourteen additional pieces of bone afterwards worked out before my leg was healed, wrote Joseph. The turbulent epidemic that marred Joseph's childhood also reduced Father Smith to poverty. Seeking economic freedom, he moved his family to Norwich, Vermont. The first year in Norwich, our crops failed, wrote Mother Smith. The crops the second year were as the year before, a perfect failure. The next year, an untimely frost destroyed the crops. This was enough, Mother Smith continued. My husband was now altogether decided upon going to New York. In 1816, Joseph Smith Sr. left the Connecticut River Valley and settled in Palmyra, Ontario County, New York. His family later followed. Their 300-mile journey to Palmyra was not without incident. Caleb Howard, a hired man, drove Joseph from the family wagon, and as Joseph told the story, he made me travel in my weak state through the snow. I suffered the most excruciating weariness and pain. Adding to Joseph's difficulties was the driver of a passing sleigh, who deliberately knocked him to the ground. I was left to wallow in my blood, wrote Joseph. It was not until a stranger came along, picked him up, and carried him to the town of Palmyra, that he again joined his family. In Palmyra, the Smiths worked hard to acquire the necessary means to become property owners. The quality of their labors is best described by Joseph's brothers, Williams. Whenever the neighbors wanted a good work done, they knew where they could get a good hand. It was our family. Before long, Father Smith contracted for a 100-acre farm nestled in a wooded track less than two miles south of the Palmyra village, There the hand of friendship was extended on every side, wrote Mother Smith. However, the cordiality of neighbors and newfound friends 
ended abruptly in 1820 when 14-year-old Joseph announced to a minister that he had seen a vision. The minister and other grown men scoffed at the idea of heavenly beings appearing in the woods of New York, but the unwavering affirmation of the teenager soon rankled minister and farmer alike. When Palmyra resident Thomas Taylor was asked, Why didn't they like young Joseph? He answered, To tell you the truth, there was something about him they could not understand. Some way he knew more than they did, and it made them mad. Although opposition brought sorrow to Joseph, he would not recount. Though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it. Joseph endured the mockery, little knowing that there were men who would have rejoiced to have known of his vision. If I could see the face of a prophet, such as had lived on the earth in former times, a man that had revelations to whom the heavens were open, who knew God and his character, I would freely circumscribe the earth on my hands and knees, said Brigham Young. Unfortunately, Brigham or others, who would one day hail Joseph as a prophet of God, were not in Palmyra to defend the rebuffed youth. Adding to his difficulties were Joseph's own actions, which caused him to feel condemned. On Sunday evening, September 21, 1823, Joseph supplicated the Lord for forgiveness of all my sins and follies. While calling upon the Lord, a light appeared in his room, and then an angelic being appeared at his bedside. The angel called Joseph by name and said, God had a work for me to do and that my name should be had for good and evil among all the nations, kindreds, and tongues. The conflicting reputation centered on a book written upon gold plates and a Urimum Thummim prepared for the purpose of translating the book. As the angel conversed with Joseph, the place where the plates were deposited was shown him in vision. This visionary scene and subsequent angelic visitations through the night and the next morning ended at a hill of considerable size, about three miles southeast of the family farm. On the hill, Joseph was told the time for bringing the plates forth had not yet arrived and would not until he learned to keep the commandments of God, not only till he was willing but able to do it. Four years passed before Joseph received the plates. During those years, family members listened to his recitations of heavenly truths. When his brother William was asked, Did you not doubt Joseph's testimony sometimes? He replied, No. We all had implicit confidence in what he said. He was a truthful boy. Father and mother believed him. Why should not the children? As Joseph prepared himself to receive the gold plates, he charged his family not to mention the heavenly truths outside the family circle. Yet promises they might, neighbors strained to hear fanciful accounts and retorted with ridicule. But the Smith family remained calm amid the abuse, for they were now confirmed in the opinion that God was about to bring a more perfect knowledge of the plan of salvation and the redemption of the human family. This opinion was confirmed near midnight on September 22, 1827, when Joseph, having gone to the place where the plates were deposited, was met by the same heavenly messenger who delivered the plates up to me with this charge, that I should be responsible for them, and if I would use all my endeavors to preserve them, they should be protected. Keeping the plates safe proved difficult for Joseph, 
Because the mob element in Palmyra shouted, We will have them plates in spite of Joe Smith or all the devils. A birch log, a hearth, stones, floorboards, flax, and a barrel of beans were used to keep thieves at bay. But as the frenzy mounted, Joseph was under the necessity of leaving the area. For the next two and a half years, he resided with his bride, Emma Hale Smith, in a farmhouse at Harmony, Pennsylvania. During those years, Emma gave birth to a son, only to lay him in a grave a few hours later, and the 116 pages of the Book of Mormon were lost through broken covenants. These tragedies were perhaps tempered by the translation of the Book of Mormon. Joseph would dictate to me hour after hour, and when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he left off, without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him, wrote Emma. Oliver Cowdery testified, These were the days never to be forgotten. To sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven awakened the utmost gratitude. Oliver also wrote of being present when the priesthood was conferred by John the Baptist and, later, Peter, James, and John. Of the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, Oliver penned, I was present with Joseph when the higher Melchizedek priesthood was confirmed by holy angels from on high. This priesthood we then confirmed on each other by the will and commandment of God. Priesthood brought added dimension to the translation process. Our minds being now enlightened, wrote Joseph, we began to have the scriptures laid open to our understanding and the true meaning and tension of their more mysterious passages revealed unto us. As the work neared closure, three witnesses, one being Oliver, were shown the plates by the angel Moroni. Their testimony so moved Joseph that he said to his parents, Father, Mother, do you know how happy I am? It rejoices my soul that I'm not any longer to be entirely alone in the world. Soon their testimony and the translated Book of Mormon manuscript was published together. This publication set the country in an uproar. Friends and strangers took opposing sides for or against what Joseph was calling the Word of God, and the Rochester Daily Advertiser newspaper was calling an evidence of fraud, blasphemy, and shocking both to the Christian and moralist. Yet such negative remarks did not prevent seekers from reading the Book of Mormon, visiting Joseph or longing for the day when the Lord's promise, I will establish my church, would be fulfilled. That day arrived on Tuesday, April 6, 1830, and what became the first organizational meeting of the Church of Jesus Christ, today known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The meeting opened with prayer, emblems of the Savior's sacrifice were blessed and passed, and the Holy Ghost was poured out upon us to a very great degree. Joseph was acknowledged as a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the Church through the will of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. After the meeting, Father Smith desired baptism. Of his baptism, Joseph exclaimed, Praise to my God! that I have lived to see my own father baptized into the true Church of Christ. When members of Reverend Diedrich Willer's pastorate presented themselves for baptism, the Reverend mocked the upstart religion and its founder. The greatest impostor of our times in the field of religion is no doubt a certain Joseph Smith, he said. 
yet attempts to stop Mormonism failed again and again. When a mob destroyed a dam to prevent baptisms in a stream, the dam was rebuilt and believers immersed in baptismal covenants. When Joseph was charged with being a disorderly person of setting the country in an uproar by preaching the Book of Mormon, he was acquitted in a court of law. In reflecting upon the overt follies of his enemies to stop Mormonism, Joseph mused, We feared not our opponents, knowing that we had both truth and righteousness on our side. We had the doctrines of Christ and abided in them. Young and old, rich and poor, farmer and educator stopped to listen, as early missionaries shared with strangers and newfound friends the Book of Mormon. The religious stir created by their restoration message in the Book of Mormon in small settlements near and at Kirtland, Ohio, is legendary. The people thronged us night and day, wrote missionary Parley P. Pratt, insomuch that we had no time for rest or retirement. About 130 persons were baptized. The newly baptized asked God to send the prophet Joseph to them. Their prayers were answered when 25-year-old Joseph Smith arrived in Kirtland in February 1831. I've never seen anything like it on earth, said Mary Elizabeth Rollins. I could not take my eyes off him. The saints loved Joseph and took unkindly to false reports, lies, and foolish stories and individuals who found fault with him. To the man who loudly railed against against Joseph, woe, woe unto the inhabitants of this place, convert Brigham Young minced few words. I I put on my pants and shoes on, took out my cowhide, went out and laying hold of him, jerked him around and assured him that if he did not stop his noise and let the people enjoy their sleep without interruption, I would cowhide him on the spot. For we had the Lord's prophet right here, and we did not want the devil's prophet yelling round the streets. Although the man stopped, others did not. Joseph found it necessary to move to Hiram, Ohio. There in the John Johnson farmhouse, Joseph renewed his work on the translation of the scriptures until March 24, 1832, when violence erupted. Near midnight, a dozen men, stimulated by whiskey, entered his bedroom. Some had their hands in my hair, and some had hold of my shirts, drawers, and limbs, said Joseph. You will have mercy and spare my life, I hope, he cried. Harsh profanities and laughter were followed by the directive. Call on your God for help. We'll show you no mercy. One mobber tried to force a noxious drug into his mouth. Others opted to tar and feather him before fleeing. Joseph survived the ordeal, much to the chagrin of the mobbers, who were not appeased that he was all scarified and defaced by their cruelty. Nor were they satisfied that his infant son died a few days later. They wanted nothing less than the death of a Mormon prophet, but such wants were ill-founded. Joseph returned to Kirtland and announced the building of a house of the Lord, a temple to God. A few saints heralded the proposal and suggested that the temple be constructed of logs. Shall we, brethren, build a house for our God of logs, Joseph asked? No, he replied. I have a better plan than that. I have a plan of the house of the Lord given by himself. The plan was magnificent in design, but financially beyond the reach of the poverty-stricken saints. Notwithstanding, the church was poor. Joseph observed Latter-day Saints began to build the imposing edifice, and notwithstanding the threats of the mob, 
temple construction went steadily forward. That was until Joseph learned that mobs in Missouri had had forced Latter-day Saints from their homes. He then sobbed aloud, My brethren, my brethren, would that I had been with you to have shared your fate. Hoping to relieve their extremities, Joseph rallied a quasi-military force called Zion's Camp. Unfortunately, the camp did not succeed in returning the saints to their homes. Naysayers charged Joseph with a catalog of, of charges as black as the author of lies himself for this failure. Yet Joseph was not diverted from the tasks at hand. Money, produce, and letters of encouragement were sent to Mormon exiles in Missouri, and the Kirtland Temple was finished and dedicated. As on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost was profusely poured out, wrote Benjamin Brown of that day. We had a most glorious and never-to-be-forgotten time. The congregation sang, The Spirit of God like a fire is burning, and the saints shouted, Hosanna, to God and the Lamb. They then sealed their shout with a united Amen. One week after the dedication, the prophet Joseph wrote of another glorious manifestation in the temple. I retired to the pulpit, the veils being dropped, and bowed myself with Oliver Cowdery in solemn and silent prayer. While praying, the veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were open. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us. The glory of that April day was never obscured by the difficulties that followed in 1837. In that year, guilt-ridden fingers were pointed at the Lord's anointed, and the shout, Joseph Smith, a fallen prophet, was heard even among the elect. Joseph fled from the vocal apostates in Kirtland, as did faithful followers. What the Lord will do with us I know not, wrote John Smith. Although he slay me, I will trust in him. We are like the ancients, wandering from place to place in the wilderness. Just as Kirtland reeled with apostasy, Mormonism in Missouri was following the same forbidden path. Vexious lawsuits, rumors, and falsehoods confronted Joseph on every turn. Solomon Hancock's testimony, Brother Joseph is not a fallen prophet, but will yet be exalted, was jeered, for the prevailing sentiment was, Joseph had fallen and must be stopped. Apostates joined with the mob element in perpetuating lies, even to the governor of Missouri, Lilburn W. Boggs, reacting to the falsehoods and in disgrace to the public trust he held. Governor Boggs called to arms the Missouri militia with orders to exterminate Mormons or drive them from the state. Hans Mill Massacre and the fall of Adam on Diamond were products of the evil government sanctions. Frightened saints of God were subjected to the glitter of steel and the sheen of muskets as towns fell, in the, fell to the Missouri militia. Hiram Smith endeavored to find out for what cause the Mormons were being subjected to death. All that I could learn was because we were Mormons. Joseph Smith and other Mormon leaders did not escape the extremities of Missouri. When they were captured outside of Far West, the militia yelled like so many bloodhounds let loose upon their prey. Had the army been composed of wolves and panthers, they could have not made a sound more terrible, wrote Parley P. Pratt. Guards, bl guards blasphemed God, mocked Jesus Christ, and taunted Brother Joseph, Come, Mr. Smith, show us an angel. Give us one of your revelations. Show us a miracle. 
Just as they were taunting the prophet, an illegal court-martial was being held, and Joseph and fellow captives were condemned to death. General Donovan's defiance, If you execute these men, I will hold you responsible before an earthly tribunal, so help me God, so alarmed the militia leaders that they dare not put the decree in execution. Instead, they forced Joseph and other prisoners into a wagon headed towards independence. Curiosity seekers clamored to see Joseph Smith as the wagons journeyed toward the frontier community of independence. Which of the prisoners is the Lord whom the Mormons worship, a woman asked in independence. When a soldier pointed to Joseph, she approached him and inquired whether he professed to be the Lord and Savior. Joseph replied, I profess to be nothing but a man and a minister of salvation sent by Jesus Christ to preach the gospel. He then preached a discourse on the doctrines of faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. All seemed surprised, and the lady in tears went her way, praising God for the truth and praying aloud that the Lord would bless and deliver the prisoners. Instead of being delivered, the prisoners were placed under military guard and independence and then taken to Richmond, Missouri, where they were forced to listen to the profane cursings and tauntings of the guard. That was until Joseph exclaimed, Silence, ye fiends of the infernal pit! In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and hear such language. See such talk, or you or I will die this instant. There was such a tone of finality in Joseph's words that the quailing guards crouched at his feet, begging his pardon, and remained quiet till a change of guards. The civil hearing, often referred to as a mock trial, provided little relief for the prisoners. For 15 days, Joseph listened to a seemingly endless parade of perjured witnesses. Judge Austin King ordered that the Mormon leaders be jailed in liberty, evoked from the defense attorney. If a cohort of angels were to come down and declare the prisoners innocent, it would all be the same, for King had determined from the beginning to cast them into prison. From Liberty Jail... Joseph penned letters of encouragement. To Emma he wrote, If God will spare my life once more to have the privilege of taking care of you, I will ease your care and endeavor to comfort your heart. When hope seemed only a momentary glimmer, Joseph cried, O God, where art thou, and where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? The Lord answered, My son, peace be unto thy soul, Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. Fear not what God can do, for fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. In April 1839, Joseph and fellow prisoners did escape bondage. We felt like shouting Hosanna to in the highest, giving glory to that God who had delivered us, wrote Parley P. Pratt, as he and Joseph met as free men on Illinois soil. This was indeed a time of praising God, for near an unlikely bluff, overlooking a swampy bend in the Mississippi River, the city of Nauvoo would be born. Sadly was I disappointed, wrote Reverend Samuel Pryor after his visit to Nauvoo. Instead of seeing a few miserable log cabins and mud hovels, which I had expected to find, 
I was surprised to see one of the most romantic places that I have visited in the West. The buildings, though many of them were small and of wood, yet bore the marks of neatness, which I have not seen equaled in this country. Of all the buildings under construction, none captured both heart and soul like the Nauvoo Temple. Men hauled stone day after day by hitching teams up to wagons and pulling the stones through the streets. Joseph, seeing Brother Bybee's wagon stuck in a mud hole, waded in mud halfway to his knees and getting his shoulder covered with mud to help another man in distress. He cut limestone and chopped wood, but often interrupted his physical labors to discuss the gospel. The prophet would unravel the scriptures and explain doctrine as no other man could, wrote Wandel Mace. Brigham Young added, Joseph took heaven, figuratively speaking, and brought it down to earth, and he took the earth brought it up and opened up in plainness and simplicity of the things of God. These sublime moments ended all too soon, as mobs threatened invasion of Nauvoo. Joseph's advice, let us keep cool as a cucumber on a frosty morning, was difficult for conspirators in Nauvoo were swearing before God and all holy angels the destruction of Joseph Smith. Although Joseph believed that these men could not scare off an old setting hen, their evil plans ignited public sentiment to a feverish pitch when they printed the Nauvoo Expositor. The first issue of the newspaper belched forth the most intolerable and the blackest of lies. Joseph, in conjunction with the Nauvoo City Council, denounced the newspaper as a public nuisance and authorized a sheriff to stop future publications. The swift, destructive actions of the sheriff led publishers to charge Joseph and the Nauvoo City Council with inciting a riot. To his brother Hiram, Joseph cried, There is no mercy, no mercy here. As others counted, Joseph said, If my life is of no value to my friends, it is of none to myself. I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward all men. On June 24, 1844, Joseph bid farewell to his family and made his final journey to Carthage. In Carthage, the accusations of riot were turned to treason. By the afternoon of June 27, a mob loitering outside of Carthage jail sang, Where now is the prophet Joseph? Where now is the prophet Joseph? Where now is the prophet Joseph? safe in Carthage jail. As the day waned, Joseph and Hiram and two members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, John Taylor and Willard Richards, lingered in the east bedroom of the Carthage jail. There, Elder Taylor sang, In prison I saw him next condemned, to meet a traitor's doom at morn. The tide of lying tongues I stemmed, and honored him in shame and scorn. My friendship's utmost zeal to try, He asked if I for him would die. The flesh was weak, my blood ran chill, but my free spirit cried, I will. Around five in the afternoon, an armed mob overpowered the jailer, rushed the stairs, and fired shots into the east bedroom. Hiram was the first to fall from an assassin's ball. Bending over the body of his lifeless brother, Joseph sobbed, Oh, dear brother Hiram. As Joseph moved towards the east bedroom window, two bullets hit him from the doorway, and two struck him from the outside. He fell from the window to the ground below, 
and was heard to exclaim, O Lord my God, Joseph the prophet of God lay dead outside the jail. But the testimony of Joseph Smith lives on. To this I testify. Joseph left a name that cannot be slain. He lived great and he died great in the eyes of God and his people. And like most of the Lord's anointed in ancient times, has sealed his mission and his works with his own blood. I thank Joseph Smith for living a great life amid adversity and sorrow. I also wish to thank Liz Lemon Swindle, a premier painter of the Prophet Joseph Smith, for sharing with me her artistic renderings for this presentation. I also wish to thank John Telford, a BYU professor, for sharing with me his Nauvoo photographs, which have also been used in this presentation. I thank President Bateman and those responsible for the Carl G. Mazur Award. I just couldn't imagine that they would think of me. And to my family, friends, colleagues, and my students, do you know what a privilege it is for me to spend my life with you? I love you dearly. And now I want to speak about my visiting teacher, Janice. It's been 25 years since Janice was my visiting teacher. I called her up and said, this is Susan. She knew exactly who it was. I said, I need you to come to BYU. I want to talk about you. She said, George and I'll be there. And she came, so I've asked her now to stand up. Some may think that, obviously, this award is mine, but you now know better. There was a woman who wanted 12 children and had nine, and so she watched mine so that a mother could receive an education. You ever wonder, Janice, what happened to those three children? They also came. Now, as their mother, I'm going to tell you they're great, but there's a reason I had them come. These three sons also liked to study and liked books. They also received their doctorate degrees. So I wanted Janice to know, and all of you to know, that her kindness to me so many years ago not only helped in the process of educating a mother, but her kindness has educated a family. I thank you dearly. I say this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>